culture. We're a part of it. It is a part of us. Culture has been broadly defined as the customary beliefs, social forms, the material traits of a racial, religious, or social group. And here today, unless you're visiting from another part of the world, the majority of us find ourselves a part of Western culture, within American culture, within Pacific Northwest culture, within Washington culture, within South Sound culture, within a city or town culture. We are all cultural mosaics. But we aren't just a part of these larger cultures, we are also a part of and influenced by consciously and often unconsciously by different cultures within those larger cultures. We are influenced by and known by our ethnic culture, our family culture, our subculture, which is a style, say, or, or sports, or quilting, or hunting, or music, or any hobby culture. We're influenced by pop culture, different forms of media. We're influenced by political culture, work culture, consumer culture, evangelical culture, and then also a local church culture. And when we attempt to push from one culture into another, what do we call that? Being countercultural. You get the idea. We are a room full of complex cultural mosaics, what we are about, what we love, what tribe we are a part of is shaped by and influenced by all of this, all of these. But now I want you to think about with me just for a moment, this local church. What is the culture of EBC? How would you define it? What are we about? And though there is a ton of cultural and subcultural unity and diversity in our midst here in this room, what should a predominant primary culture be in the life of this church? Well, with those questions on the tip of our minds and the tip of our hearts, please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Timothy. First Timothy. This morning we are continuing our occasional series through this letter. We're going to be in chapter 5 today, the whole chapter. If you do not have a Bible, you could find one under a chair near you. You could find it on page 932. As you are turning there, the great pastor and preacher C.H. Spurgeon said, that we should visit many good books, but live in the Bible. And this morning we are going to, Lord willing, live in the Bible. Live in this chapter, 1 Timothy 5. Please follow along as I read from it this morning. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. 
Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation of good works. If she is brought, has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the absence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even whose, those that are not, can, cannot remain hidden. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd bless your word this morning, that you would feed us from it, that you'd teach us from it. Spirit, I ask that you would turn the lights on in our hearts and minds. Cause us to behold your glory in the face of Jesus this morning. We ask that this would not just be another Sunday, another service, another passage. But we ask that you would reform us and conform us into the image of Jesus by your spirit and word this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this occasional sermon series through this letter is titled, Flourish. Why? Because this letter contains the blueprint for flourishing pastors and flourishing churches. And thus far in the letter of 1 Timothy, we have discovered that a flourishing church, first and foremost, brothers and sisters, first and foremost, protects the entrusted message of the gospel. We saw this in chapter 1. It also prioritizes prayer, the payment, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus, and is committed 
to purposeful complementary roles for men and women in public worship. We saw this in chapter 2. It also has Christ-like leadership and lives out the truth of the gospel as one family. We saw this in chapter 3. It also perceives unsound doctrine and persists in sound doctrine. We saw that in chapter 4. And today, in chapter 5, we find that a flourishing church cultivates a culture of care. A flourishing church cultivates a culture of care flowing out of a love for Jesus and the gospel. A flourishing church ought to have a deep loving care for spiritual family. We read of that in verses one through two. A care for sufferers. We see that in three through 16. And then a care for shepherds. There finally in verses 17 to 25. So point one, a flourishing church cultivates a culture of care for the spiritual family. Look with me once again at verses one and two. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. In order to make better sense of this chapter, we need to look back at Paul's purpose statement for the letter and why he is writing to Timothy and the church of Ephesus. Do you remember what that purpose statement is? It's found in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. There we read, I hope to come to you soon. Paul is writing to Timothy and the church. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. And here Paul is unpacking, further unpacking, how the church, the household of God, should live and flourish together as spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers, brothers, and sisters. Here at the top of chapter 5, young Pastor Timothy and all the church is encouraged to not needlessly or harshly rebuke older men in the church, but to gently admonish and encourage them like honored fathers, to encourage younger men as brothers, to encourage older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters picking up the language of the fifth commandment to honor father and mother and expanding the principle here in the life of the church. Paul applies this generally to Timothy's ministry as well as the church's ministry, then and now. Now, in a day where masculinity is under attack and older men are rarely encouraged but are culturally rebuked, especially if they're fathers, especially in the media, think about like Homer Simpson. In a day and age where more and more younger men are struggling with latent adolescence, struggling to grow up and take responsibility in life. In a day and age where older women are not encouraged but seen as aged out and no longer socially useful. In a day and age where younger women are encouraged 
or aren't encouraged, but are objectified. Paul is encouraging the church to be countercultural right here, to cultivate a culture of encouragement and care for one another, for spiritual family, to respect older men as fathers in the congregation, to love and respect older women as mothers in the congregation, and younger brothers and men, and younger brothers and sisters as well. So men, women, even children here at EBC, young and old, in this congregation, do you have a respect and care for one another, a kind of care that thinks the best of another, that seeks the best of another, that shows godly love toward others and encourages others in word and action. This passage is a call to this kind of deep, familial, respectful, honorable love in the life of the church. And where does this love come from? Where does it come from? Where has love like this been so clearly displayed? And ultimately, how are we made a part of a loving family that's marked by this kind of love? In and through Jesus, brothers and sisters. Jesus changes everything. It all comes back to him. And through him, a household, a 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2 family has been formed. And Paul knows that the household of God, we who are living under the influence of the world, the flesh, and the enemy of our souls, needs to be reminded of this. That through Jesus, estranged sinners from God and one another have been saved and made a family by the blood of Jesus. Amen? We can't miss this. Paul declared this truth in chapter 1, verse 15, where he wrote, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Save sinners, a family of sinners. Then he declared in chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for those who believe. Who are those who believe? A family. Then in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul grounds the letter in Jesus, who is the head of the church family, globally and locally, the one who is the mystery of godliness. And then in chapter 4, verse 10, Paul wrote, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe, especially those who are part, or who are a part of his family. Do you see the pattern here in the text? This kind of pure familial love that Paul writes of in chapter 5 here is only made possible through and in the love of Jesus who came to this world in part to, to create a spiritual family. Jesus is the love of God embodied, brothers and sisters. He is the only begotten Son who was sent in love to save sons and daughters, to make sons and daughters of estranged family because of sin through his gospel work. And it is through Jesus that men and women 
younger and long-standing, the repentance of sin and faith in him alone can be a part of this family and called, as Paul says in Galatians 4 verse 5, redeemed, adopted sons and daughters. This is the good news of the gospel for a church family like ours right here at EBC. But if you're here today and you find yourself outside of this family, outside of Jesus, if you have not repented and believed in Jesus alone for salvation, then here at the outset of this message, please listen. You were made by God. You were made to be a part of the family of God. You were not made to be estranged from God, to be, but to be near to him and, in, and near to his people. Like the people here in this room. And so if you repent of sin and believe in Jesus today, then like that, you will be made a son and daughter of God and brought into his church family globally. If you have questions about this, I'll be standing in the back after the service. I would love to talk with you about this. Or you can find another pastor here at EBC, or you can talk to the person who invited you today. But beloved Christian, beloved brother, sister in the faith, it's not a coincidence that Jesus says in John 13 that those who are his are not known by their niceness or knowledge, but by what? Their love for one another. We are to be known by our love, our care, our spiritual care for our spiritual family around us. Even though we do so imperfectly and in very broken ways, we are to pursue and cultivate this. So let me bring this down to the pavement of our lives for just a moment. Brother, sister, when was the last time that you approached another brother or sister in the faith here at EBC and said, I love you in Christ. I love you like a father, like a mother, like a sister, like a brother in Christ. How can I encourage you this week? When was the last time you got together with another member of the church with the sole intention to spiritually build up and encourage to help that brother or sister follow Jesus? and walk with you as you pursue following him as well. May we heed Paul's encouragement here as a church family, as a spiritual family, to pursue a genuine love and care that is godly, palpable, spirit-given, word-directed, and pure, as it says there at the close of verse two. Oh, if we are to be a flourishing church, we are to cultivate, though imperfectly, we are to cultivate a culture of care for the whole spiritual family of God, and that includes the sufferer. That leads us to point two, care for the sufferers. Paul knows that a family that is not encouraged and cared for, that isn't practically, emotionally, spiritually, intentionally cultivated will not survive. It will end up like a, a garden that is left unattended and uncared for. 
My family and I were over in the Seymour Botanical Conservatory yesterday afternoon, over in Tacoma. One thing was made abundantly clear as I walked through that conservatory with my family. It is well cultivated. It is well tended to throughout the year so that it does not wither away and die. In these verses, Paul presses further in to what intentional care, spiritual tending looks like in the garden of God, in the family of God, particularly care for the sufferer, more specifically the widow in the congregation. And in verses 3 through 8, he speaks to care for younger widows. In verses 9 through 16, he speaks to the care of older widows in the church. Let's look at verses three through eight together. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household, to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The first thing Timothy and the church is told to do here, verse 3, is to honor widows who are truly widows, to respect, revere, to hold in high esteem those whose spouses have passed away. In the household of God, widows are an example of the least of these. Not simply financially, but practically, emotionally, spiritually. Now, according to verse 4, it is pleasing to God for widows who have a living family to both be cared for by their family and to care for their family. This encouragement is also picked up there in verse 8 to living family members of widows. If they are able, they are to provide for the widows of their family, to not neglect them. For if they do, they deny the faith in action and are considered worse than one who does not believe. That is a hard truth, but it's clear here in the text. If one is able, they must care for the widow and their family. And if the widow is able, she is to care for her family. But in verses five through six, if if they are truly a widow who, who are all alone, if they are setting their hope on God, are spiritually alive and not spiritually dead and are continuing with God in prayer, taking their needs to him who is their ultimate provider and caregiver, if they are a widow who is not living self indulgently, selfishly, independent of God, but is living a spiritual life in the family of God who is not spiritually dead but alive, communing with God in prayer, taking their needs to him who is the ultimate, again, provider and caregiver. If they cannot be cared for by their blood family, they are to be cared for by their other blood family, the blood family of Jesus through their local church. And where is, where is Paul getting all this? Is it getting all this language, this idea? Well, he is drawing from the deep well of Scripture in both the old and new, and he is highlighting the character of God here. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, we read that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. 
God executes justice for the widow and he loves widows. His people are to love in the same way and to do the same. Further, in Psalm 68 verse five, we read that God is father of the fatherless and protector of who? Of widows. God protects widows. His people are to do the same. We should pause here for a moment. How comforting are these verses? How comforting is it that we have a God, we serve a God, we worship a God who sees the least, who loves the least, who has compassion on the least, who cares and protects the sufferer, the widow, and the family of his people. Isn't that amazing? Well, where do we see the care and compassion of God on full display more clearly in Scripture? Well, we see it in the person of Jesus. You don't have to turn there, but listen to these words about Jesus from Luke chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. As he, Jesus, drew near to the gate of the town, behold, the man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. The story goes on to say that Jesus resurrects the son, not only for the sake of the widow, but also for the sake of that son. (laughs) We must notice how Jesus incarnates toward the widow here. He sees her. He has compassionate care for her. He sees her. He feels for her. He then speaks to her. This is the heart of God on full display for the person of Jesus right here in Luke 7. And it's being upheld by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And so believing widows, men and women here at EBC, Jesus has a deep affectionate care and love for you. You are not alone. He sees you. He is with you and in you and for you. And he has given you this body, this local church here at EBC to be his hands and feet of continued physical, emotional, and spiritual care for you. And what does that hands and feet practical care look like? Well, Look with me at verses 9 through 10. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation of good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. This practical care looks like enrolling widows. Paul instructs Timothy... And the church to enroll widows here. What does that mean? We're going, to get that on, we're going to get to that in a moment. But they are to enroll widows who are, verse 9, over 60 years in age. Who were faithful women to their husbands. Who are known, verse 10, for their good works. Who have mothered children and shown hospitality. Now this isn't limited to just biological mothers. But in principle, those who have also spiritually cared for people within the church. 
who have faithfully served others through acts of loving service, like foot washing, for example, as we read there, who have cared for the suffering, who have devoted themselves to good works, literal servant care for others. These widows are to be enrolled, kept on a care list, so that they can be intentionally cared for. Now, it has been historically understood that this care list goes two ways. The widows who are being cared for by the church are simultaneously caring for the church. And I am encouraged by the way that widows do this in the life of our church, from caring for one another and doing life for one another, for taking care of the grounds, the flowers that are right outside of of EBC, and also caring for others through the welcome ministry here at EBC. But if you are a long-standing widow here in the life of our church and you don't know where to serve or how you can serve, you should reach out to us. We'd be happy to get you connected, happy to get you plugged in. Please let us know. In verses 11 through 16, Paul turns his gaze and addresses the care of younger widows within the church. Let's read those verses together. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation of having abandoned for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now it is helpful to remember that False teachers in the church of Ephesus had risen up. And one of the reasons that Paul is writing this letter is to confront them. And those false teachers were teaching asceticism, meaning they were abusing the law and ungodly self-discipline. And they were teaching, as we found back in chapter 4, verse 2, what? We found out that they were saying that marriage was bad. So these teachers within the church were encouraging people not to get married out of self-discipline. And so here, Paul is confronting this false teaching and encouraging Timothy to also confront this false teaching by upholding the goodness of biblical marriage. He does this as he warns younger widows not to abandon the faith by becoming overcome with sexual, or the desire for sexual companionship, and he encourages them to remain pure, not only sexually, but also in action and in speech. We see this in verse 13. We see that an idle head, an idle heart, an idle hand will often lead to sinful gossip and busybodying, if that's a word. An example of this is the character Rachel from that classic story, Anne of Green Gables. Anyone? The town gossip and busybody who's all up in everyone's business. There are many examples of people who are bored, nosy, aimless, and always looking for a scoop to spread. Does this define you? Whether you're a widow or not, in principle. Well, according to Paul, what's part of the remedy for this type of behavior for a younger widow? Well, marriage. The care for a loving family and the management of a home. We see that there in verse 14. 
for a younger widow, these help make no provision for the flesh, for gossip, for busybodying, for slander. And marriage may also help one not, verse 15, stray from Satan. Well, Paul closes this section in verse 16 with another appeal for young widows to care for living family and be cared for by living family, to be cared for them primarily if they are able and not the church, so that the church can continue to care for true widows who are long-standing and alone and in need of financial, practical, physical, emotional, and spiritual help. At the end of the day, these verses are a call to action to cultivate a culture of care here at EBC for anyone in need, really, but especially the widows. So before we look at the care of shepherds here in just a moment in the life of the church, I want to first look at four practical applications, just brief encouragements and ways that we are attempting and continuing to attempt, with the Lord's help, to cultivate this kind of care here at EBC. Here we go. First, in order to engage in this sort of care, what does it assume? It assumes that we actually know one another, that we actually know the needs of the church. So whether you're a widow or not, don't just dip in and dip out of the church life. Both get to know others and be known by others. Second, in our elder meetings here at EBC, we take time to pray through a care list which oftentimes involves some of the widows of EBC. We devote time specifically to pray for their needs, to care for them through prayer, and to talk through whether or not there are any other needs in their lives. Third, for the good of our church and for our joy alongside our general fund, we also have a benevolence fund, and the benevolence fund is for those who are in need practically, both inside and outside the church. That is our way of attempting and continuing to attempt to meet the practical financial needs of the least of these, both inside and even outside the church in our community. And fourth, fourth, the last, lastly, a place that we're trying to do intentional care. Whether you are a young-standing or a long-standing member of EBC, or even a regular attender, is through our care group ministry. A ministry that allows you to walk with other saints throughout the week, to be prayed for and cared for. So if you're not a part of a care group, we would encourage you to become a part of one for your good, for the glory of God. Well, if we are to be a flourishing church, then we must cultivate a culture of care for spiritual family for the sufferers we've just seen in these verses, and further for the shepherd. We see this in point three, care for the shepherds. In verses 17 to 25, here Paul moves from care for spiritual family and the sufferer to the shepherds, the elders. An elder is not to be regarded here as limited to age, but speaking of pastors in the church. That term elder, pastor, shepherd, is interchangeable. And Paul is making it abundantly clear that in the life of the church, care goes both ways. Care goes both ways. And so after speaking to the shepherds back in chapter 3 on their qualifications, where he lays out the qualifications of a faithful pastor and pastors, 
He speaks here to the whole church about how to care for shepherds in the congregation by doing two things. First, faithfully giving for the sake of the shepherds, verses 17 to 18, and then faithfully guarding their shepherds. Faithfully giving, faithfully guarding. First, Paul calls churches to faithfully give for the sake of their shepherds. Let's read 17 through 18 together once again. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. In verse 17, Paul picks up that honor theme from the previous section and attributes it to shepherd pastors. He says that the shepherds who rule and labor in teaching and preaching well, which are two functions of the same pastoral position, are to be considered worthy of double honor. And that honor includes respect, love, care, support in practical ways, emotional ways, spiritual ways, and in financial ways. Again, this care goes both ways. One of the greatest ways that you could support the pastors of this church is by praying for them regularly, daily, weekly. Here, again, Paul kind of dials in on the financial care, though, for pastors. And, and some say that we are to keep a pastor poor in order to keep him humble. But that goes against what, know, how Paul encourages Timothy in the church here, then and, both then and now. Paul is saying that a way for the church to honor and encourage a faithful pastor is by faithfully caring for him financially. Commenting on this, I was sent this quote by a brother in the church earlier this week. John Piper says this, don't call a pastor who is trying to get rich and do not be a church that is trying to keep him poor. <laughs> One of the ways pastor receives, pastors receive double honors by receiving appropriate financial care. And Paul isn't pulling this out of thin air just to, to, to guilt the church into giving. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy and he's quoting Jesus himself in Luke chapter 10. Paul pulls this from the Old and New Testaments to encourage the church in order, in order to support their pastors who are leading and teaching and preaching well with the Spirit's help. Second, he also calls the church to faithfully guard their shepherds. Let's look at verses 19 through 25 together. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Because shepherds are in a public position, they can be accused. Sometimes truly, sometimes falsely. Now there is no such thing as we saw back in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that there's as a perfect pastor. If you're looking for a perfect pastor, then look no further than the cemetery. That man is dead and with Jesus. 
Mistakes are made. Intentional and unintentional sins are committed of commission or omission. There have been times in my own life where I've had to seek repentance, to walk in faith, to ask others to forgive me. Just ask my wife and my kids and even some members of this church for the way that I have not cared for them well or I've acted pridefully or selfishly. The point of the text here is for mistakes and charges to be fairly treated, especially in the context of the local churches. And so Paul calls the church here to care for their shepherds by protecting them from false accusations, by fairly considering charges against them, by hearing two to three witnesses. And Paul is quoting here from Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17, where we read, one comes and states his case and seems right until the other comes along to examine it. Charges against a shepherd should be treated fairly with no prejudging or partiality, as Paul says there in verse 21, which are both ungodly. But if a shepherd is unrepentant and caught up in a sin and he has not repented and he has not seeked reconciliation and the charge is true and is justified and that sin ought to be taken seriously and he is to be held accountable for that sin. Not only so that he can learn, but also so that the church can learn there in verse 20. We read that. Now this is not for sins like jaywalking, one pastor says, but serious, unrepentant, moral sins. Here's what Paul is driving at. The church ought to take sin seriously and to hold unrepentant pastors accountable in the presence of all the members of the local church so that the whole church grows and learns the weight of sin and, Lord willing, the beauty of reconciliation and restoration through Jesus in the gospel. In principle, this passage applies to every member here in this room, every member of a local church. We see this in chapter uh, 18 of the gospel according to Matthew, where we see how to handle both private and public sin. So how do you view sin, particularly by a pastor against you or against, against one another or it's a family member? How, how do you think through that sin? Do you see it as a teaching tool about the process of, of forgiving and reconciling and repenting and holding one another accountable? Do you see that as a, a teaching tool in the life of the church and not a way just to, to clobber one another until glory? In a church like Ephesus where false teachers running amok, teaching false things about God and a godly life and making complete shipwreck of their faith, where there were false teachers not watching their doctrine in life, but walking away in impurity. Paul is calling shepherds and churches here to take the sin seriously in their lives, calling the church to take sin seriously in their lives, and also calling the church to take the pastoral positions in the church seriously. And so he encourages the, ch the church there in verse 22. He says, not be hasty, but patient, careful in laying on of hands and the appointing of a shepherd. Well, we're going to touch on this more in a moment on what it means to be patient and careful in laying on of hands. But 
Did you, what do we do with verse 23? Did you, did, you, did that verse stick out to any of you? Kind of strangely. I appreciate how the ESV translators put it in parentheses. Have you ever been kind of on a train of thought and then you like hop out of that train of thought and then get on a different train of thought and then go back to the main train of thought? What's kind of happening here? What's happening with Paul here? Paul encourages a faithful pastor, Timothy, to drink wine as medicine here. One commentator makes the point that in light of the false teaching of asceticism, again, that, that rigid kind of self-discipline, uh, self, uh, that Timothy may have given himself in some ways, or at least potentially could have given himself some ways, to an ascetic lifestyle that would have included total abstinence from alcohol, which is not required for any Christian or pastor. So Paul's making it clear here, as an aside in the letter, that abstinence is not required, but that wine can even be helpful with common ailments. Well, circling back, why should the church be patient and careful in who it appoints as pastor, as pastors? Well, verse 24 to 25, because some people's sins and their good works, Paul adds, are conspicuous, which means clearly visible, while others are inconspicuous. They appear later after some time. And so pulling it all together, this whole section, out of care for the church itself and its shepherds, a flourishing church ought to faithfully support their pastors by intentionally caring for them, intentionally holding the, the role of pastor as an honorable place in the church, but to be patient and careful in who it calls to preach, teach, and shepherd because the position of pastor is weighty and glorious and is worth being guarded for the sake of the purity of Christ and his bride, the church. This is not just a call for the church then. This is a call for the church now to cultivate a culture of care a culture of pursuing purity together. Well, we should close. Returning to the questions that were asked there at the beginning of our time together, what is the culture of EBC? How would you define it? What are we about? Though there is a ton of cultural and subcultural unity and diversity in the life of our church, even in this room, what should a predominant primary culture be in the life of this church? Well, flowing out of the love for Jesus, of the love for Jesus and the gospel and with the help of the Spirit, in order for us to flourish, we must cultivate a culture of care here at EBC. A culture where we care for spiritual family, for sufferers, and for shepherds, all to the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for making sons and daughters of those who were once estranged to you through the Son, Jesus. What grace, what love. And we ask now that you would give us well, we have not, that you would teach us what we know not and that you would make us 
what we are not. For our joy and for your glory until you return, Jesus. And to that end, we pray, Lord, come quickly. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.